Ladies and ladies and gents, I'm your host, Soli. Introducing to the show, we got Jason Peters of Esoteric Cinema. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to uh, having a nice conversation here about one of like my favorite working filmmakers here with uh, some other... He's very still alive, ladies and gents. He hasn't retired. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, Travis Crawford from Wait, You Haven't Seen? How you doing? I'm uh, I'm also looking forward to talk to talking about one of my favorite working directors right now. He's like on my Mount Rushmore of active filmmakers. He's like one of the few agreeable guys like of recent that has not divided his eyes yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> yes. In a world where someone has divided him. Uh, and once again, returning Jack and Joe from Derazzled. Howdy. Hello, thank Howdy. you for having us back. We are also uh, very excited for this one. Yeah, th this was a tough one to schedule because there were some who were just like, wait, do I have to have seen everything? I don't have four hours to watch Dune. I'm like, I just want to know <laughs> if you were a fan and if you're not a fan, you know, is it just bring it all together. I mean, we've done plenty of infamous filmmakers on here. We we got a Tommy Wiseau episode coming up, but we, we yes. covered no brain. Oh. And then we've, of course, done the usual like, <laughs> Spielberg and John Singleton, you know, is like we want to invest into why do many people want to collect their movies? When did they become big and everything? So I'm going to just circle around and just follow everyone else's lead. Travis, you're new to the show. Uh, when did Dennis V become worthy of any of your time? I had heard the name, uh, a, you know, a few years ago, and uh, there was mention of like Sicario and how great that was and, and this, but it really was. Um, it was Blade Runner 2049 that got me to watch him. And for the first time, because I, I grew up a huge fan of Blade Runner, and I heard they were making a sequel. And I was like, okay, so I've heard this name before for like Sicario. And there was another one. I don't remember what it was now. Um, was Enemy yeah. out before that, I think? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it was probably that one. And, uh, and I was like, all right, I'll check this out. And then I watched Blade Runner 2049, and I was like, my brain melted. In a good yes. way. I was just like, it destroyed what? my sister. We both went and she's like, so sad. It's it was just it was amazing because it, it managed to take and evolve what was already a movie that that had done something to my brain back when I was a kid, the first time I saw it with the voiceover. To to this, it just it it took that world and it evolved it and it built so much onto it. And I'm like, oh, I gotta find everything else this dude has ever made and watch it, which yes. is quite the undertaking. Because it's long, he he does a lot of uh, dense work, but man, it's just incredible. Thousand percent. Oh man! So Jason, uh, we always let the newcomers come first. Uh, when did you uh, just start following this man's work and his dark, moody visuals? Yeah, so it's really funny because in terms of actually like following him as a filmmaker and paying attention to him, I was really late to that game. I actually, the first film of his that I've seen in theaters is Dune and everything else I saw on home video. And I don't really know, I can't really explain why it is, but so with Blade Runner, for example, at Cards on the Table, I was not really a fan of the first one. And actually one of the things that that I most movie. appreciate no, <laughs> about Denis is that 2049 was so good that it made me go back and really want to like understand the first one. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that 
but it's but it's funny because at the same time like uh, 2049 has so much more i would argue anyways has so much more narrative substance right whereas i think yeah. like the what the first one really brought to us was just the notion of like the world building and the set design and just you know creating its world but the narrative in the first blade runner is like deceptively simple it's kind mm-hmm. of a very sort of quick direct whereas 2049 is more of this you know sprawling there's kind of mystery where you know there's there's elements of the story that are revealed and change the story and shift directions and characters are introduced so um so after i actually and then way before i had like seen prisoners and i really liked prisoners but i had no idea that it was anybody in particular i thought it was just kind of a run-of-the-mill studio movie so and i'm a huge dune fan so when dune came out that's when it was like, oh, okay, so this guy, he's in 2049. Oh, shit, he also did Arrival. Loved Arrival. Totally had no idea that was this guy, too. And so it's one of those filmmakers where it's like, someone asks you, like, oh, have you ever seen this guy's work? It's like, oh, one or two films. It's like, oh, okay, because here's all the ones you've done. It's like, oh, no, I've seen, like, three quarters of that guy's film. Yeah, I just took you a moment. <laughs> We're kind of going back so, slowly into how it used to be in the 70s, 80s, where it's like, if you liked at least three of theirs, you always checked it out, and then... Yeah, when uh, film if, history books became a thing, you realize, wow, I've seen more than I realized. Yeah, yeah, and it it does feel like he's got that kind of a, a filmography where you wouldn't think of, like, Dune and Blade Runner are sci-fi, but you know, so is Arrival, but a very different type of sci-fi yeah. story, yeah. which is totally different from Sicario, which is not the same thing as Enemy, and it's it's one of those where it's like you wouldn't think, you know, if I tell you Edgar Wright and you've watched an Edgar Wright movie, you have an idea of kind of what he's making. Right. Or, you know, any of that. And this wasn't that at all. Tarantino is going to put all that he loves in a blender, but he's still going to have the, you know, very energetic, foul-mouthed dialogue. (laughs) Exactly. makes Denny Villeneuve identifiable is his look, the way he tells a story visually. But the types of stories are very different. Yeah. Always. For sure. Uh, Jack and Joe, uh, when, when did you hop on the Dennis V train. Uh, so I, on a whim, watched Prisoners and loved it. Same. I just loved the way that it was told, loved the, um, how dark he was willing to go with the story. Uh, and then I tried to shove it off on as many people as possible, uh, which it's a, it's a little dark to be doing that, but I was like, you're, you're fine. <laughs> you, do you have kids? Oh, you do? Okay, maybe not. Um, <laughs> yeah it'll destroy uh, you if you're a parent <laughs> right yeah uh and then i'm also a huge fan of the original blade runner and i had no hope of it being a good sequel i was like there's just don't just don't try uh and that he was able to pull it off um cemented him as i i think he will eventually become a director who is talked about in the same breath as maybe not like a Kubrick, but I could see him mentioned in the same way that like a David Fincher would be. Sure. Uh, which is yeah. why I was excited to do this yeah, episode. Liking your contrast uh, that, and so just a little backstory, uh, you know, he is a French Canadian filmmaker and uh, he, he is married to journalist and filmmaker, Tanya Lapointe. He, his younger brother, Martin Villeneuve has also done, uh, various shorts and sci-fi films in his native language. He uh, ha- also has a son named Salome, who has also 
uh, done some short films, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Including for the Venice Short Film Festival. It was called literally just Roman numerals of free. Like hmm. it, it, it premiered at like a Venice Film Festival. So, uh, but yeah, so for those who don't know who the hell he is, who we're talking about, uh, Dennis Vanab has been a producer and director on movies such as pulling up the list i know everyone else knows but like, i just got to make a beat more flow more uh you might know him from uh the psychological character study that's been rediscovered uh Melstrom from 2000 you might know him from the true crime movie 2009 polytechnique the 2010 uh <clears throat> uh lebanese civil war movie incendies his career really took off when he made the kidnapping thriller prisoners back-to-back with the psychological thriller enemy he later crafted the war film sicario the sci-fi mystery arrival the sequel blade runner 2049 and is currently helming the dune franchise so it's a lot to pick and choose from Jason, I was really was really happy that you brought up Arrival because that was my entry uh, into into Denny. Uh, a friend of mine, after we had we've been talking about, I think I think twenty forty nine had just gotten announced, and I was like, yeah, it's being directed by this guy. I'm not really familiar with this stuff. And my friend went, wait, you've never seen this movie? So we immediately <laughs> like stopped what we were doing, and she sat me down, like watch carefully, and, carefully. and I absolutely <laughs> loved it. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, and so by the time Dune came out, I was like, "I'm ready. Let's fucking do this!" Hell yeah, oh, a thousand percent. Yeah, no, it was, and it was like, you know, it was one of those films where it like got such a good response. Like, I don't know about you guys, there are certain times where a film has like too good of a response that I'm like, I have to give it time because my expectations are too exact high. same. Every mm-hmm. time I walk into a movie, I can with see that huge expectations. It's always disappointing. Yeah, um, overhype dude, is a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. To win yeah, Fury and- Road is one of my all-time favorite movies. And I came yeah. out of my first viewing disappointed just because, mm-hmm. again, it was like, it was this fevered pitch that it's just, there's no movie that is as good as this has been built up to be. This is like, people are saying like, you're going to sell your house to watch this film and stuff. It's like, no, no. But it's a, <laughs> but again, it's a very good movie. I love it. It's my favorite film. So, but yeah, so I think that was why I had avoided for Arrival for so long. And finally it was like, okay, enough time has passed. Yeah, I really I like sci-fi. Let's check it out. It and then sci-fi. it was like, wow, that was that was as good as everyone says, right? It's like it's like when you finally go back and watch these great films like Casablanca or something. And it's like, yes. well, that was as good as everyone says. Yep, certainly a that, masterpiece. Uh, Should have watched it years ago, but glad I yep. finally did. Yeah, that happened to me with um, to be seen. Yeah. Holly, uh, Hollywood Boulevard. Ooh, um, sunset Boulevard or Sunset or Sunset Boulevard, yeah. Sunset yeah, Boulevard. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I had yeah, never seen that as a kid. You yeah, wouldn't know what yeah. to think, but yeah, when you watch it in the right, <laughs> yeah. Some, somebody had me watch it, and I was just like, "This is better than I thought it was going to be." Like it's been built yeah. up, and it it exceeded those expectations. I was blown People away have by it. Ripped it, and... it off for years, so you're always like, mm, "Is it really going to be good?" <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah. what happens. You know, it's it's one of those that when it when a movie becomes that much in the zeitgeist there's a reason for it right there's a reason why casablanca or whatever you know pick your classic movie is in that conversation um and and i feel like you know uh you mentioned earlier about um you don't think he'll be remembered quite like a kubrick but i kind of think that's a close parallel to sort of what he does because when you listen to him talk 
or you read interviews with him and, and he's talking about the movies he's making, he doesn't think of them in a commercial sense at all. Mm-hmm. He thinks of them as in pieces of art. Like that's uh, exactly where I was going to go with that. Cause it's cause like, like he evolved naturally. He doesn't well, wait to see if he can be on, like he doesn't wait to be pigeonholed. Like no, all his movies no, have all. all kinds of elements, but they're not the same genre. I think no. among film nerds, he'll be discussed for his skill uh, whereas Kubrick has surpassed film nerdom into almost being a household name, not yeah. even just because of the movies he's made, but because of his personality, whereas Denny Villeneuve... For better and worse. For better or worse. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> Denny's um, a pretty uh, almost introverted individual. Uh, he doesn't have that mania. Exactly. Yes. I guess that's that's fair. But I just, like, from, from reading, you know, uh, a lot... Of, like, Blade Runner 2049 bombed. It was not a box yeah. office success. Yeah. And part of that he blames kind of on himself uh, for not only keeping the story such a secret where like nothing got out. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was a great, I saw a great like super cut video of all of the principals, the actors, the producers, the and him on like the press tour where it's mm-hmm. just interviewer after interviewer saying, so what can you tell me about this? And they're like, nothing. Not a thing. Can't tell you. Don't know. And next question. So he blames we don't partly, know what we made. <laughs> so partly, partly on like he made what he called the the most expensive art house movie. Yeah, one hundred eighty five million dollar art house movie, because he wasn't thinking about it in terms of like a business thing. It was I'm making this piece of art, and I'm going to go the direction that I'm going in that. And what he he nailed it in terms of what he was trying to make, because Jason, like you mentioned, it took. The original Blade Runner and that evolution and that that expansion of the story made it so much better. And now you can kind of retroactively go back and piece to you know add it adds more to that original uh, movie as well. It's and part I of think one that giant overall story. And I, yeah, I saw and, people who were going in; they thought they were expecting something like Matrix or Edge <laughs> of Tomorrow. I'm like, why the fuck would you go to a movie if you hadn't seen the first one? I don't Edge understand to, that. Edge of Tomorrow, really? <laughs> I'm just bringing just up in, in terms of being like more like an action-y stuff. genre kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm like, there's oh, action, okay, but okay. it's a sci-fi western. And uh, to build on you guys' point, uh, so yeah, I'm on a lot of the same boats. Like, you know, I had heard of Enemy and Incendies, uh, Prisoners. I saw one late night on the HBO stations and was like, this is so sad, but damn you and praise you you know at the same time i was getting that kind of reaction you made the perfect kind of tragedy it's so simple and yet it feels so real i can't describe it and he's broken i could tell he was breaking through any typical oyster because he had certain signature styles but they were very hidden where like you say i mean because i do like the kubrick and fincher angles because yeah when i finally gave sicario rent when it first came to red box it was very clear that okay he he has a bunch of influences but he's his own kind of just gruesome kind of nature and psychological kind of level this is what his style is and yes he's very anti he's anti-mainstream but he's mainstream anti-mainstream at the same time (laughs) like he has broken through that puzzle he can give something edgy that someone maybe expecting an Antoine Fuqua or Martin Campbell type you know action drama is totally looking for and then he can appeal to the ones who are like you say looking for something kind of like a Christopher Nolan or 
a more accomplished filmmaker who was definitely more respectable in most circles and uh he's never like you said he's never set to make the same movie every time my sister was actually trying to get me to react when she saw that he was getting in a twitter feud recently with neil blancamp now to each their own but i really legit love neil blancamp i i love district nine and elysium and i like this i respect his visual effects background and this new stuff he's been doing chappy it definitely smells of studio interference but yeah if it basically the long story short Desmanov was one of many filmmakers like Scorsese and Jane Campion who fucking hate superhero movies and uh, Blancamp was like fuck you I love superhero movies and, I, and she wanted me to pick a side I'm like I'm not picking a side I respect them both I respect their opinion why why do I have to be in this conversation and to well, Travis's and point, like at the end of the day it, neither neither side is wrong either. correct like, it is their opinion they they don't have to love all of that we love you know we can love it yeah. all different forms of movies we don't have to love the same thing and to travis's earlier point yeah i'm I'm looking at his box office numbers and his earlier pictures didn't exactly gross back money either but clearly he hit it big he's able to make enough of an impression for producers and investors to want to spend time on his movies and he's kind of just like I said, he's just faded into whatever's interesting him. Honestly, uh, by after... the way, let's uh, go, go ahead. Good, Joe. Sorry, I was just gonna say, um, after Blade Runner twenty forty nine bombed, I was amazed that they let him do Dune. I mean, I'm it's yeah. gorgeous and I love it. I'm glad they did. I'm amazed the studio was like, yeah, go ahead and take this potential franchise and run with it. Do it. Do the thing you do with it. I was reading a little bit actually. Uh, he he wrote a piece for Vanity Fair, I think, or or maybe no Variety. Right. He wrote a piece for Variety, um, talking about like the background that he has with Dune because he fell in love with the book as a teenager, and he and his friends would like storyboard out what a movie would look like for it, and knowing that he had he's had this like in the background simmering in his mind for years upon years upon years, like this mad God-esque kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and that he actually gets to do it. He actually gets to fulfill that dream. Bingo. It's just such a fucking cool thing yeah, to see. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though. I do think that one thing that really helped him on this, right. Is that, you know, sometimes there's sort of circumstances beyond our control that can help uh, because yeah, to your point, like if you lost that much money on your, you know, huge Epic a couple of years ago, like you're not getting called back by any studio to go right. to Dune, but I think what worked and what helped him secure that, thankfully, so that you know everyone could sort of give him his due props and he could show that he knows what he's doing, um, is that the book was so well respected, and the book and and Dune fans were not going to accept a lesser version of the movie Dune, right? Not um, after David Lynch's version. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And I'm so, sorry, you know, Smitty. especially <laughs> with regards yes. to the and especially with regards to the first half, you know, it's very, it's very formal. It's it's really mostly politics, right? And, mm -hmm. and setting the yeah. setting up the world of what would happen in the second act that's much or the second half that's much more traditional action adventure storytelling. And so I think that because Dune fans had a certain expectation and a, a, they almost demanded that the filmmaker carry a certain amount of reverence for the source material i think the studios went okay you know if we hire this guy like we've got the dune fans right now that's <laughs> going to get us a certain amount of return right it's probably not enough to break even but let's also remember that dune is considered 
Uh, Dune is considered a science fiction novel, and as such, it's the most successful science fiction novel ever sold. It mm -hmm. sold the most copies yeah. of any book ever defined as science fiction. So even though it maybe isn't, you know, Harry Potter or any one of these huge <laughs> book franchises, like it's a big deal, you know? And so again, and he does, if you're he's just going to give that to some random guy, him, it's not going to work. He doesn't yeah. let himself be like put into that category where, oh, you got to come over to, you know, Sundance. You got to come over and helm this new Marvel movie. You got to helm whatever other sequel that we're thinking of making because we saw you in it. It's like they pretty much they let him stew in that own oyster that he has crafted and they find a movie that matches the general feel they get from his cinema. Well, I, yeah, you don't see him doing the kind of like one for you, one for me kind of thing that you see some uh, some true. filmmakers falling into. Yeah, no, he he does what he wants to do. I think too, like even though Blade Runner didn't make a ton of money, it reviewed so well, it did great in the yeah. award season. It was mm -hmm. up for so much stuff, and that's gonna let like a studio be like, okay, so maybe this one was just mismarketed a little bit. Like it, it ended up breaking even worldwide. More often um, than not, they just like to, like to find a scapegoat. I mean, I was hearing Forget Brewster on Andy Richter's podcast talked about how anytime you were in a pilot that didn't get picked up, you were always on the shit list of you're the reason it get, didn't get picked up. So I think oh, sure. a lot of people, I mean, post Weinstein are just been able to just kind of show that sometimes marketing just doesn't work and you just mm -hmm. got to make your money back, you know, after the fact and paying who, your Who investments. put out Blade Runner 2049? Was it Fox? Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Oh, okay. So. And they also did Dune, correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. So they, and that they helps too. Is like, but they've been Warner... losing money for years in general, that, even before. That's well, HBO. and that's and why Warner... they would make it up on HBO, you know. Yeah, and and Warner Brothers is traditionally a very like filmmaker centric studio. Anyway, they that's really why try Soderberg's to back. Still there, you know. <laughs> Soderbergh's there. That's why uh, Nolan was there for so long. Yeah. Um, and that that's kind of what what it goes with and and on top of that just the passion behind making this dune you know mm -hmm. his and bringing up sort of that that idea that he was a fan of it since he was a teenager and all of that it it shows it came through in the final product because it really did that movie gets better today. every time i watch it it won oh, a Hugo award yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll rewatch yeah. it again in prepping for part two. And really? I saw plenty of people who were doing the usual, you know, I was bored, didn't know what to think. I'm just like, well, just soak it in slowly. You don't have to just react to it all right away. And I think that's the problem. He's, but it's also hit a plus. He's able to kind of break through any kind of barrier. He's kind of critical proof because he's not a typical, like you say, independent art house or mainstream or big budget. He's he's a painter. He really is. And just seeing even these honors that he's been honored for, for from Canada, I'm just like he the man has clearly made some kind of impression with many people. Uh, he's surrounded himself with all different kinds of producers. Uh, Sean Levy was one of the guys overseeing arrivals, uh, you know, uh, getting greenlit he worked with john wick producer basil i on sicario and again you know no one expected sicario to become a franchise but you know that was a taylor sheridan oh, yeah, vehicle as much as it was his you know <laughs> just, it's interesting just seeing how like you're saying he's he he assesses stuff and then he he kind of you just feel like you're just being reflected you're, you feel like you've been he's a professor who sums up what he sees and then he kind of blows your mind with what you're doing more than just learning. You're just like 
uh, absorbing it firsthand kind of well the thing i like the probably the most about him is that every single movie i've watched of his it's a fully realized world which is yes. like you can kind of say that with like dune or blade runner it's a little easier because it's not our world but even with movies like prisoners or polytechnic that's our reality more or less and he still is able to build a world around that story that i feel like i could live in playing anything they typically are known for and even if there's someone you might consider overrated you just know that based off who's at the helm you 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 trust him you're just like okay i trust your judgment uh they they either got a look or you're just playing the okay the investor says i got to put him in this movie here's how i'm going to use him yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's something really interesting that he does over the course of his career. So, and I'd like to get your guys' take on this too, because I was trying to like, you know, just look at his whole filmography, see if there's sort it's of a lot. I already told the guys before we started like that. I, I squeezed in three of his movies before we just began recording. So <laughs> <laughs> nice. And yeah, and one of the things that uh, occurred to me about it is I think that they're the the one sort of how do how to put it. There's a central theme of all of his movies where it's basically like one man, right? One person. They're usually very independent. The other thing that I appreciate that I think does a lot for his movies is his protagonists are always very intelligent. And so as such, he's going to treat the audience with respect by way of having to treat his protagonist with respect. And I really appreciate that. Um, So that's a huge thing. But it's always these very singular people that are dropped into situations where they're huge they're much larger than themselves these you know in 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 things like dune and blade runner it's literally universe expanding but even something like going back to ansandi right it's this woman who's placed in this situation and while a number of the story events are happening to her specifically what we learn as the film goes on is like all of these are really just machinations of these much larger mm-hmm. systems and yes. political powers and people at play Thank you. you know and so uh, same thing with prisoners, right? Like, you know, it ends up being this, uh, you know, it's not maybe quite as big, but it's not just this straightforward, like, oh yeah, it's this guy and he did it, right? He's got the aunt. There's all these other things going on around him. And then even getting down to like arrival, you know, where it's, uh, you know, just literally like, um, as you know, if you want to talk about big, it's it's humanity, you know, it's sort of seen through Amy Adams, but I think Amy Adams is learning to like trust almost a metaphor for humanity and, yeah. and then having extraterrestrial beings beyond your, you know, imagination come down and interact with you. And so it's always these, you know, again, very sort of intelligent, determined, independent protagonists. Often you get the sense, you know, another thing that's interesting, they typically don't have much of a family right? They tend to be like these mm-hmm. yes. characters, even in Prisoners, he's doing it for his family, but it's yeah. not like him and the family band together. Every it's one person man either breaks the law saving. or Yeah, so we always see these very determined Jesus. protagonists that are, you know, have their own specific battle that's important to them, while at the same time being reflective of everything else that's going on yes. at large with humanity and society and such. Humanity. Mm-hmm. Humanity yeah. is the portrait that he paints. And- it's fascinating to hear you say all that because it like the like as you were going through those points, it's like, oh, no fucking wonder they gave this guy Dune. Like it's <laughs> yeah, like right, the, exactly. the yeah, politics, exactly. the the nature of the worlds that he that that he's used to working in and the 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 depths of detail and context and lived inness of all of it that he's he's creating, the the family relations, all of it. Like it all it all builds 
up to actions, that, that passion project. And actions speak louder than words. So often he's letting the music do the talking. He has the yeah, dialogue yes. be so basic without feeling, you know, just half-assed. He's just like, wait. But he does it without yeah. having the music tell you how to feel. Correct. Right. No. Not he doesn't stress the music either. He just will have it come in when it needs to come in. He just is good at the quiet moments. He's good at all the stuff interfacing and it never feels like a random reshoot or studio disagreement. Uh, well, it's, it's something that I talk about a lot uh, when I'm talking movies with people is like, tr- you know, typically what I, what, what will connect with me the most is give me a very simple story, but make my world and my characters complex inside of that story. Yes. Because I don't need a complex plot to have to try and follow for it to be mm-hmm. good. If the <laughs> characters that I'm following are compelling. He has this ability to make a complex uh, plot while also giving us uh, very compelling characters and very interesting worlds to to really just sink your teeth into and just and feel like you're in. I mean, I keep mentioning the Blade Runner one, but that's the because I just finished it earlier today. Like it's fresh in Woo! my mind, and it's <laughs> it's that way of of like you know the first blade runner was a very simple plot but the world was so fleshed out and there was it it was so different than anything we had seen and it really set up this this thing and then he took that idea and that cyberpunk idea of like what is reality and what is humanity and what is life and just built upon that and made it so much more and made you question it and yeah he's got some plot twists in there and some stuff but at the same time like none of it feels convoluted it all feels like it's part of this world and you've got this single protagonist who kind of isn't even a protagonist. Like K is largely irrelevant to the the story that's going on. Like everything could happen without his interference. The anti-screenplay is like, and that's just it. Like you see everyone who's complained about his movies. It's like they were never going to like it because it didn't follow any kind of formula they were familiar with. It didn't follow even basics, it required using their brains. You know, anyone who's ever talked smack about prisoners, I notice is just like they're just they just I don't know. It's like they thought it was going to end a typical way every kidnapping filler works. And same thing with Dune. Well, they were expecting a spectacle. It's like he already stated, well, I'm trying to not make Star Wars, which is hard because it was totally influenced by Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, I well, was born- it, it 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 influenced Star Wars. Yeah, right. The, um, but the um, the, it's interesting that you say that you say they that uh, they didn't they were expecting a spectacle because they damn sure got a spectacle, but they yeah. got one <laughs> that they got one that's executed so much more atypical. in such a different way. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. an atypical spectacle that he really knows how to like make meld with everything else. Like it meshes with the rest of the world in such a way that it doesn't feel like this giant out of this world occurrence like it it speaks for itself and it's it it feels like it has real consequence for the characters and the narrative and everything it's not just big flashy thing well and and jason mentioned treating the audience with respect too yes um which absolutely like he he gives the audience respect and the ability to kind of soak in and formulate what you think is going on and sort of fill in some of the blanks. He doesn't have to tell you everything. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to do the filmmaking 101 of tying ribbons to the the air vent. So you can see them moving to know air is coming out of it. Right. Like, yeah, that's what you're taught when you're making movies, but he doesn't have to do that to get his point across. And that is where you can make those Kubrick or Fincher is a great comparison as well. 
because they understand that the audience is going to get what they're doing and they don't have to, you know, hit you over the head with it. They can let the art inform it. And then the audience goes for it. It's that same thing with the music. It's how he uses music without it having to tell you how you feel. He doesn't have to have an M night. uh, Yeah. The music pushes you in the direction, (laughs) but it doesn't, it doesn't just say like, you're sad now. You know, I feel like music has a vibe rather than a feel. Mm-hmm. Vibe, That's a good way yes. to put it. it yes, it, it's like it's playing, but it's not the star of the show. You know, there could even be a singer maybe in that background of whatever movie he features, but it's not the main attraction. He he likes to kind of also kind of make use of a voyeuristic kind of look without even being a voyeur necessarily. It's like I'm dropping you in on this conflict that you have no business witnessing. And, I do want to expand on what Travis and Jason, you, you're starting to go into where you have a protagonist that things are happening to them rather than, than them causing stuff, which is kind of the opposite of what I was taught as a, as a writer. Yeah, uh, I, yeah which absolutely. like Sicario, I feel is the best example of that because I, I did not like Sicario the first time I watched it. Cause I'm like, she doesn't do, I mean, she does stuff. Like it's yeah. just her, <laughs> things happening to her which is the the entire point of the movie um but you're right like even in blade runner uh k's there we're experiencing the story through k but you know k's not really doing a whole lot it's because it's not his story like right it's deckard's story uh in the long you know the the full thing is a kind of deckard's story and the replicant's story it's not k's story but he's there and he is our our doorway in but it's yes. all a well-earned thing like you're hitting on because mm-hmm. it's not they didn't make this all up you know off the top of their head and just see what stuck they planned it all and he decided here's where i'll reveal this here's where i'll focus on this i mean more often than not characters are reacting just like the audience but it's not because you know it's a guessing game of who figured it out first the audience or the character it's all a matter of kind of just we're all witnesses to some hidden truth see it's, yeah. it makes me so happy to see these kind of literary traditions uh, pulled off so effectively in film because I, I hear like i hear this conversation regarding things you know happening around or to these characters but not happening because of them and it just immediately my my mind goes to the great gatsby it's nick caraway yes. but no one mm-hmm. actually gives a shit about nick he's not the important part of the story <laughs> yeah. it's right. gatsby it's daisy it's, it's, it's shakespeare not, it's, without being pretentious you know yeah it's, it's, the, the, it's the the literary idea of the flaneur the like the the the, the perspective character who's just kind of drifting by show like showing you the events that are happening but he's not the important thing he's not the focus so like like, you can see people compare and contrast different movies with his but in a way they're kind of the better version of said movie that you're comparing it to like you can compare prisoners to a man on fire or taken but it's kind of the anti version of that and the same thing with sicario it's kind of i've seen people compare it to the kingdom or even training day with you know good cop bad cop it's like yeah but it's a whole different side of that equation you know it's to even compare it it's kind of overall kind of irrelevant like it might get you in the door if you're interested in that kind of movie that's similar but again like like you guys are saying he's a tough cookie to pin down because you kind of can't pin him down his interests are everywhere and so elaborate I want to say something, and I want to know if you agree or disagree. I think possibly the reason that 
some audiences have trouble connecting with his stories is he's not telling a the traditional hero's journey. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. And it's I, not even works. a typical noir. It's not even a typical character study. It's basically, it's not even in the moment. It's really tough to pin down what it is. I think he's telling stories that are bigger than just the hero's journey. Yeah. Like Sicario is not about the story of, um, was it Emily Blunt? Yeah, yeah, of think, federal agents and witnessing corruption, you know. Right. It's more about the corruption than it is her character and her progress and through the story. And it gets to her. Will to she the point quit? Where we, Will she die? Will right. she expose them? Will she be captured? You know, I we don't know because it could the story could go anyway. And because, like you say, he's built the world, you accept wherever it could go. Most audiences who want a beginning, middle, end probably won't, but those of us who are very open-minded have come to accept it because like you say, you know, Travis has said, you know, what's something moody is going to continually happen for the rest of the movie. And Jason hit on how you feel like, again, you don't feel like he's preaching to any kind of choir, let alone treating other screenwriters with, you know, ill will. And so, yeah, you, you feel respected and you feel you, you accept the surprise. It's, Kind of like if someone were to give you like uh, a surprise party on the day when you least expected it, <laughs> but then it was like something so much more. It's like, man, I had so the greatest much more Arbor fun. Day I've ever had. <laughs> I had so much more fun than I realized I actually need. You know, and it was a pleasant <laughs> surprise. Yeah. So let's go back actually to uh, Joe and Jack, what you guys were talking about, just with kind of the literary inspirations, because I've never really thought of him in those terms but now as we're talking about that there are a lot of sort of like literary flourishes and structures and devices that we're like as we're talking about them it reminds me of that mm-hmm. so i think i think one of the central aspects of his films that probably gives it a unique vibe and works for and against him with his audiences is thinking about now you could make an argument that like each one of his films is ultimately a mystery and yes. Because each of them has a central mystery at play. And and, and when I say mystery, too, I kind of uh, combine that with, like, the old noir uh, books and, and later movies, yeah. right? But all the Raymond Chandler stuff that we're what talking makes about. Because that's very tech. indicative Ooh. of that, right? The char- yeah. the protagonist is, is driving the story forward in terms of he's trying to find this thing, right? Whatever the, uh, you know, MacGuffin is or whatever it is. He's trying to find the Maltese Falcon. Uh, he's trying to yeah. get to the bottom of who killed his wife. Uh, he's trying wood, to find out, uh, yeah, where, where, <laughs> how come the uh, money, the money drop that was supposed to happen didn't happen, right? Whether it's in the in the context of crime or not, you know, we see a lot of traditional noir and mystery inhabit that structure of, you know, the main character is just kind of driving towards one goal, and these things keep right happening in response to that, and so we can see that in tons of his films, right? Like, I mean, Blade Runner is a really obvious one. Um, going back to like on Sandy, where it's just like reveal after reveal and pivot, and we think it's this, and then it's that. And but also, I think that maybe the people that don't like his films, it could be because it is that structure. There's a lot of people where if you show them an old French noir film with 30 different twists and turns, after the seventh, they're like, I, I don't even know what's going on anymore, dude. What the hell? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. and the moment you lose your audience, that like you can't get them back. 
And I will say, if there's a criticism to be had, I would argue that it's on the filmmaker to make sure that if you're going to do that, you don't lose that audience member. So if someone wanted to argue that there's, you know, an element of his filmmaking that could be a bit more populist, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. But oh, for sure. I also think at the same time, what keeps him going, and I don't know this, but if any of you, yeah, can, we're not saying I anyone would imagine who he's doesn't like him is dumb. We're just saying but, he's yeah. anti. But I, would, but I would imagine that he plays the he plays the game in terms of giving the studios what they want, and then totally. because he gives them one or two things, then he's able to take him, you know, the rest of it and do it his way. So yeah, you don't I hear. That, I think anything. that all of this kind of comes back to him not being any one thing you know he takes a little bit of the mystery he's an he takes adapter a little bit of the determined protagonist he takes a little bit you know we haven't even gone into scale which let's have a whole separate conversation about that with regards to his visuals <laughs> but no he's a but he's again a he's piecemealing a little bit of this of that and yeah. putting it where it works and i think that's a yeah. large part of his success. you don't ever hear anything like all these other guys it seems like they can't go a, a week without you know, so and so walked off the set, or bitch slapped. Yeah. You know, overrated actor who was giving him lip is like, yeah, he he comes off as the kind of guy who pretty much told the assistant, "Oh, that's a concern. I won't let you down." You know, yeah. he he and he. Well, I think he's also not a dick to the execs. That's what I would imagine. Exactly. So, you know, so many of the execs are like, "Hey, can you do this?" And they're like, "Fuck you! This is my movie. How dare you right. tell me what to do?" Yeah. He's probably like, "You know what? I don't I don't really care what the mountain looks like in this one. If he wants it purple, sure, go ahead and make it purple. As long as I get to like, like have my protagonist not cheat in the third act reveal, we're good. So I'll give you that." Well, Again, and like you said, I like falling here. I liked how you uh, noted the Maltese Falcon because I do kind of feel like he is that kind of guy. Is like instead of focusing on who's the main bad apple in the town or what the Maltese Falcon even fucking is, you know, he's going to be <laughs> probably more likely to concentrate on why is everyone even fighting over this, you know, inanimate object? You know, why? Well, yeah, because he'll put layers of stuff in. Like, like Blade Both Runner is a very much a, a cyberpunk story, and cyberpunk oh, yeah. stories are not the look necessarily but it's they're hard it's to like, adapt to. Our, yeah well noir was sort of like you know you had your protagonist and there was an external influence that right. that catalyzed and 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 started the story and got it going and then you had neo-noir which was you had your protagonist and they were kind of against themselves and they were doing all this stuff and then cyberpunk came along and cyberpunk is much more about like you have a protagonist but the the conflict is like what am i who yeah. am I? What's going on here? Identity so, crisis like, mixed in with yeah. a neo-Western. And like Blade Runner has this whole thread going through it of this sort of idea of like, are the replicants, do they, like, is there a soul? Are they alive? Are they the same as humans? Are they on that same level? There's a great moment in it where uh, Jared Leto's character is talking to Deckard about the first time he met Rachel and like, so do you think that that was just love or was it just programmed to happen that way? Because that's the whole thing with like cyberpunk is like things just happen because they're supposed to happen. You have no influence on it. No matter what you do, those things are going to happen. And, and whatever you have done to make it happen was what was supposed to happen in order to bring all of these things together. Mm-hmm. And so like he, he managed to do that in a way that is really, that's really hard to adapt and make enjoyable. Yeah. And, and people don't know do what cyberpunk is, even though they've seen a lot of stuff like Robocop or Total Recall or what have you. They just think, oh, so like The Matrix, Star Trek. I'm like, well, that's that's because it's more than that. Yeah, it's, it's more it's than more just than... that aesthetic. And then he turns around and does Dune and Dune, like Jason, like you said, is 
it's dense political machinations and Deep like, fantasy it's, concerning political figures and tyrants and spies. Yeah, and it's it's not an easy thing to adapt either. And he manages again to make this movie just I mean, I watched it the other night for probably the fourth or fifth time, and I I can't get enough of it. It's, it's so a, well it crafted. It literally is a drug <laughs> that spice. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> so in a way, but like to have all those different types of characters and like Dune, especially because of all the world building they do in that. And you don't have to stop and take out uh, a moment and say like this, you know, um, who's it? Thufir. They don't have to have any kind of a like take you out and narratively tell you what he is. You just intuit it based on all the context that's going on around it because he's built that world and he's built that visual, the visuals, the way the dialogue all plays together. And you just, you get it. You might not get it the first time or if you have no background to it, but if you, if you take the time to, to let it all kind of soak in, it does, it's there. And you know, that's, that's an artistic thing. That's not easy to do. He could, he um, very well could have actually been the next David Lynch, even though if you look at his earlier stuff and yeah. it's funny how he's the second guy to adapt well, third, technically if you count the miniseries, but this is like, yeah, he took on Dune, but he was just like honestly, the right guy anyway. That's, he does allegories. That's not a terrible, that's not a terrible, uh, comparison to make because no. i mean he's kind of david lynch if david lynch would say you know what let's try this instead um kind of and like yeah. listen to instead something of else instead of being, yeah, <laughs> instead of being david lynch and being like i've got an idea and i'm doing this and i don't give a shit what anyone says like i don't care how crazy it sounds oh totally i'm sorry i, I'm sorry. I gotta push back i i don't necessarily think they're very similar filmmakers here i think david lynch and denis are actually quite different what i would different, what I will different grant you, but just they're, in that they're, they're similar creative. They're similar that's, creatives that's where I'm going yeah. that's, where that's, they yeah. from. Right? Yeah, that's kind of they're, what I mean. They're gonna be yeah, but like so, so once again, this we're all speaking the same language. We're doing it different. Because <laughs> this is what drives me crazy about David Lynch is I love David Lynch's ideas. Like every David Lynch film, I want to be like one of my personal favorite films. And sometimes it works, sometimes we get Mulholland Drive, and then other times we get wild at heart. <laughs> and, you know, it's, and it also and it's just you like, react it's, differently it's the, depending on your mood yeah that kind of wild is, <laughs> yeah yeah and even something like twin peaks like i i'm i'm like with twin peaks i'm here for like the the craziness and all of this stuff but where lynch starts to lose me is the melodrama and like <laughs> there's just so many there's so much melodrama that he infuses in his movies that like gives them that like 3 a.m. midnight cult vibe, which I love, <laughs> but I'm I'm never programming a double feature of Denis and Lynch unless it's actually oh, no. how <laughs> different they are the as filmmakers, right? I mean, <laughs> you're, you're right. As filmmakers, they are different. I just meant like as creatives, like right. yeah, totally. have these ideas of what they're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm here um, to tell you. So I told Jack and Joe, I saw his second movie he ever made called Maelstrom. Has anyone else here seen this one? I have not, no. I haven't. So it opens up with a talking a talking trout giving an allegory. <laughs> That's a little pinching. <laughs> so it's a very lynching moment. Lynch. <laughs> and then it follows with our main heroine who suffers this whole psychological breakdown. And Good Morning Sunshine is playing while she's getting an abortion. 
So, okay, so maybe that one movie is a little. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that uh, that sentence went places. Yeah, I mean that's a yeah. yeah. It went places, <laughs> went but yeah. So IndieWire fucking hates this movie, while Vore considers <laughs> it a great movie, comparing it even to a dream. So, I, I recommend you guys check this out if you can't find the DVD. I don't know if there's a Blu-ray that you can find it on Rare Lust, but this was yeah. interesting seeing him do this, and then Polytechnique, which is about. Again, I, I was telling them before uh, an actual 1989 uh, Montreal massacre about a man, uh, two students who witnessed a, a gunman murder uh, 14 factory women. And yeah, we were just talking about this earlier. Yeah, it's a fictional retelling of right. a school shooting from 1989. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you, you did mention it, but uh, it's it's just he's kind of like when when you saw that, you kind of felt like he was the right guy to do that kind of like instant yeah. he's he's like yeah i kind of feel like he can commentate on this because i mean we don't even freaking know anything about the guy even when we do we really don't he's just as he almost feels every day like us and at the same time the surprise is just so genuine you're just like of course he made that well yeah. why am i, I think he's one of those guys that lets you his movies do the talking you know but he yeah. lets the movies do the talking because everybody else like you say, has often a flamboyant persona or is known for their odd, you know, I, I demand final cut or else right, we're I not walk. gonna get a we're not gonna funko pop of this dude. <laughs> Which is, yeah, yeah. I would buy it if there was one. I would but love like, it. I would too. Yeah. <laughs> it would probably be a bestseller out of print by Shot Factory. <laughs> I do That's I do think though that we need filmmaker pops. That's the next place for them to go. Stanley Kubrick, I... Denis. I've got an uh, Alfred Hitchcock one. Say, yeah. yeah, Jack's got a monster shelf over here. They have those. They have they have Hitchcock. <laughs> I don't know about anybody else, but well, and it sort of speaks to what we had said earlier, where it was like y- you didn't necessarily have uh, like a, a set type of movie that he was doing, and you got into that. You you could see something of his and be like, oh wow, he made he made these other movies. I've heard good things about, or yeah, I heard about that in passing. I should go check that out now. Like, yeah just does what he does and even people who didn't like good a certain it. movie of his are generally still big fans like i know people who have problems with the ending of enemy personally when i saw it i was kind of getting the general vibe that i get from a giallo this is a anti-mystery yeah. enemy's still one of the ones that i haven't seen okay no no that's fine but it's definitely uh, one you have to read into a little bit more to get yeah. everything out of it it, it, yeah. it, I was seeing one podcast who was reviewing it. They were so mad that the plot synopsis <laughs> wasn't necessarily accurate. I'm like, well, to even sum it up is very hard. You kind of got to yeah. yeah. give a tease. I mean, I, I felt the same way with Lansandi, where it's like, you know, I, I was, I was, did it like, I, we do these little like mini reviews sometimes. Um, you do to, good like, with the mini reviews. It sounds like a Thanks, PBS right, yeah. documentary, doesn't it? If you sum it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Was that on? Um, yeah. BBC News? Well, maybe. At <laughs> but one it's one point. of these things where it's like, yeah, like like he does so much. It's kind of like uh, almost like a shake and bake of ingredients. <laughs> it's like I was trying to describe like what genre it was, and I ultimately came up with something with like political family drama mystery thriller, right? I saw like it's it listed right. in action, all of war, the film, and It's all of those things <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Um, but uh, Travis, I did want to ask you specifically. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there anything specific about his visual style over the course of his filmography that, like, you've noticed that personally jumps out to you? 
it's it's this ability to like display scale of things. Yeah. Bingo. And and it's it's phenomenal. Like again, you know, Blade Runner is right on top of my brain, but I'm watching this and it's just like the scale of things that he's showing, um, large or small. Uh, and it's this ability to like to put you in that moment. Uh, Dune is another one where it's like he's not sneaking mm-hmm. in Easter eggs. He's making sure everything mm-hmm. can vase in the scene I, I i did see that screen rent when he was asked like 10 they listed 10 movies that influenced him and he talked about how the darkness of empire strikes back kind of broke him and made him realize you didn't have to follow any kind of good versus evil formula necessarily uh, yeah. if you if you want i can list his 20 favorite movies if you are interested on far out magazine um sure <laughs> i mean <laughs> they're all gonna pretty much some of them are gonna be obvious and some of them is like it's going to really open up your mind. It's just like, of course he loves that. So, Vertigo. No Country for Old Men. 2001. Children of Men. Dead Ringers. 2017's The Square. There Will Be Blood. Aronofsky's Mother. 2018's A Star is Born. Seven Samurai. The Beguiled by Sofia Coppola in 2017. Inception. Blade Runner, Amoris Peros, Dogtooth, which is by the guy who did the lobster. Yes, love Dogville. Him. It's a Lars von Trar film for those who don't know. Close Encounters. Oh, yeah. We've brought it up a few times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Under the Skin, um. 2009's A Prophet, and Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. That's, uh, that's such, a, such a film student cinephile. Yeah, it really is. is. A lot of that tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. it makes sense. Like half of those are online, right? Like it's not. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Like, like Cooper goes like, I love white it's... man can't jump. <laughs> <laughs> like, huh? No, I would have guessed out of Kubrick, but okay. He did obscurely mention uh, Apocalypse Now, and that was kind of that's my first thing I got when seeing the yeah. opening of Sicario. Like just seeing yeah. the landscape when they just go through the town, I'm like. Yeah, see, but that wasn't just like anyone who was getting too clever with the visual visuals and had a great effects team. It was all a matter of kind of see the eyes. We, the audience, witness a random attack that has nothing to do with anything, really. It's just the first string of many attacks. And then at the yeah. end, yeah, we're seeing it through all three protagonist viewpoints, and then we're witnessing them all witnessing it all at once. He, like you say, he is... An orchestra but he doesn't always like you say have the music playing or the music that you think is the attraction is totally not the attraction it's it's all so many layers and so many it's like one giant party and you are deciding who to follow at that party <laughs> so we've talked a lot about how varied his movies are um mm-hmm. he's now done two sci-fi films back to back. I'm going to include Dune as one giant one. Uh and the movies can be a horror movie. Totally. I see I've not seen uh Unsundi. Yeah. How do you say that? Is it Unsundi? Yeah. yeah. I've not You know what? By the way, I looked it up. It was I actually looked it up. It's on Sandy is how it's pronounced. That's all good. I we yeah. used and to fuck Sandy up his name. Is Beneve, no? <laughs> yeah. Pronunciation uh, is hard. But his next film that he's rumored to do is uh Rendezvous with Rama, which is another sci-fi film. Yeah. Or hmm. sorry. So he's getting um, typecast, but he's yeah. not at the I mean, same time. He's good time. at it. I'd, I'd like him to <laughs> well, go back to try different stories. And I think too, like 
that kind of that tracks. If he's if he's a big fan of Dune, Rendezvous with Rama makes sense. Yeah. And, oh yeah. You know that's announced. It's also announced that he's going to do Cleopatra. Whether or not those are actually going to happen, oh. we don't know yet. Um, well, and he also said that he's going to do Dune Messiah. Like he originally said he was going to hmm. do the first book in two parts, <laughs> and then do the second book as the third in the trilogy, so to speak. And then mm-hmm. he's tapping out. Children of, Dune is, Children of Dune is way too big to do as another two part. I'm sure he's dying he's not going to stick around. He's not going to stick around for God Emperor of Dune. He's not going to do the giant <laughs> worm kid. <laughs> he's like, all right, yeah. So I'm going to get heavy into psychedelics, and then let's do God Emperor. <laughs> and, and shame on Hollywood for just not taking notes because that's the worst thing <laughs> they do is they they get so mad when someone leaves and someone replaces them. I'm like, but. Yeah studied them you know <laughs> yeah. well in this case like it, it, it that that he would do that on his terms right he's gonna do dune exactly. and when he's he done when he dune, he's gonna walk away story's been told yeah but some some artists can do that and some artists are like no i i gotta you know keep i'm gonna keep <laughs> going back to that well he's not that type of creator yeah. he just doesn't come across that way he's like no. no i've i've said what i'm gonna say and now i'm gonna go off in this direction and do that it's it's that uh it's why I would not compare him as a filmmaker, but as a creator to Lynch or Werner Herzog is another sure. one who does stuff like that all the time. Um, I thought it, it was very Kubrick of him to do like, okay, yeah. I did my sci-fi, I did my horror, I did my weird yeah. sex comedy. Genre check. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> oh man, what do you what do you yeah. think Denny's eyes wide shut's gonna be? Oh, it's gonna be pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, well, it'll be in French. <laughs> Um, but yeah, oh, I want him to like get back out there and do his other I genres. I want to see this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll return after these messages. Do you ever find yourself thinking about who would win in a fight between Goku and Superman? Hi, I'm James Gavsey, and on the Who Would Win show, me and my co-host Ray ignore anything important happening in the outside world and debate fictional battles between characters from comics, movies, and video games. We got a new show every week, and almost always, am I the winner? Yeah, <laughs> not true, Ray. In the past, we've discussed such matches as Captain America versus Darth Vader, Solid Snake versus the Iron Giant, classic matchups like RoboCop versus Terminator, and even the Muppets versus Sesame Street. That one was crazy. So if you're a fan of geek culture and love a spirited debate, check out the Who Would Win show wherever you get your podcasts, or check us out at whowouldwinshow.com. We let things pile up in the DVR. We add them to our queues. We wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays. We time shift. The Time Shifters podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. Cool thing about Blind Knowledge is we are in multiple countries. We are worldwide all across the globe. We are in the U.S. We are in the U.K. We are in Canada, Germany, India, Japan. We're in Australia, y'all. Blindknowledge.com. Now back to the feature presentation. 
Dragon Ball Z, One Piece, Naruto, all things that we love, all manga that were originally published in the legendary magazine Weekly Shonen Jump. But not every series can run for 300 chapters and have a hit anime. This is David. This is Jordan. We're the hosts of Shonen Flop. Each episode, we look at manga that ran and jumped that didn't quite make it. We discuss what it did wrong, what it did right, how the series could have turned itself around, and ultimately, was it a flop or not? Run all your favorite podcast apps, and you can find us at shonenflop.com. Keep on flopping, floppers. So one thing that I was kind of thinking about earlier that sort of uh, connections based on some of the things that we've been talking about here is I think it's very interesting to note the difference between a Denis movie on screen and on page. Because this is actually Mm -hmm. one of the things that we talked about specifically with regard to Blade Runner. And it it goes back to Travis's comment about uh, his sense of scale, right? When you watch Mm -hmm. his films, he has this, he creates these enormous worlds, right? And a lot of it is, you know, we're using giant, you know, widescreen anamorphic. And, you know, just the composition is like, the subject is this tiny little pixel, right? And this giant whether it's, uh, you know, I've seen screenshots of like the end of like Enemy with like the monster and in New York and stuff. I've seen, <laughs> um, obviously, with the rival, you know, the spaceships relative to the people, um, Blade Runner, you know, the skyscraper. So it's like, it's he, the worlds that he builds visually he are paints. constantly huge. The, the biggest, most expansive, right? But now we take a step back and we look at what's on the page and we've talked earlier about how a lot of it is inspired by by by, by noir elements. Noir elements are inherently small films. Mm-hmm. So one of the yeah. things that you'll notice in Blade Runner 2049 is you think it's a huge movie and it is, but at the same time, find me a scene with more than three people in it. You yeah, there isn't one. If you break down, uh, every scene yeah. is like a one-to-one conversation or like a one to two conversation or a one 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 conversation there's never these giant let's get the whole board in here you know <laughs> let's uh, talk to the military the whole choir, yeah. uh the whatever it's always like one person that represents this giant entity organization whatever with another yep. person representing this giant enormous entity and so i Even- think that that creates that juxtaposition of we're telling like small stories ultimately in that noir sensibility, like one character has his interaction here, sees another character interaction here, goes to this guy, maybe comes back, you know, but it's not even where at the end, like they all come out together in a big circle, right? The ending's always yeah. just one singular baddie that's the ultimate baddie or the main guy that did the thing. So is it's that this position of small stories with huge worlds that I think is so yeah. interesting. And and I was just going to say like Dune does that too, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. The, the closest you get to anything that isn't a one-on-one scene will be, it'll be one or two principal characters and then just background, just a, yeah. like okay. a right. sea of people, yeah. but they're this not really characters. The we established right. 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 just a background. What they the choose people. to do. We got to make everyone Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I haven't read the book. Is that accurate to the book? That's Fair a lot like what yes. the book was. Yeah, okay. yeah. The book yeah. is very much that. The that adaptation of Dune is a is a really good adaptation of that story. Okay, it's very, because it's, of it's, that. It's faithful. And that's a rarity without, to please without being crowds. Fault. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's you can it's tell a faithful story adaptation. Yes. Right. He, it's he, taking. Yeah, well, he's taking the page and making it into he's changing the medium, and he gives and a pause where he's it right, and he gives a pause where it's all due. Like I saw him constantly while promoting Blade Runner, just 
praise the shit out of Roger Deakins, his current cinematographer. How could you and not? How could you not? Yeah, yeah right. I know, I know. Everyone Roger else is the greatest oh. cinematographer but, of all time. You know, usually... You guys heard about this Stanley Kubrick guy? I think he's going somewhere. <laughs> yeah, man. Who is this guy? But yeah, never heard of him. But yeah, it's inter- I just find it interesting because most of the time it's just an ego piece saying, oh, I choose to make this movie or they got to praise the actor or the producer who got him in the door. And it's like, no. He's praising the cinematographer and the story, if anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, even when Blade Runner did did do well financially, he took the blame himself. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's uh, like which I think also is is the type of thing reaction. that gets you. Yeah, it's the type of thing that gets you the next big project because yeah, now producers and executives are looking at that like, okay, this guy can step up mm-hmm. and Bingo. and do that. He's this guy's not going to be a yeah. mouthing off piece and say mm-hmm. something fucked up like, well, fuck you, Universal. Studio interference. Yeah. 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 And- <laughs> or or even better, blame the audience. Right. Yes. Oh, my God. Right. You, you're too dumb to figure it out. My subtitle does not translate to an English card. But yeah, yeah, he doesn't pull a Paul Verhoeven where he's like, no, dude, you just made a sh- piece of shit called Showgirls. In order to make a good movie called Starship Troopers. Anyway, coming to Rizal in November. Yeah, bingo, do it. Um, but I think I fi- I figured it out for you guys. He's the next nice. Tartowski. Because, uh, uh, no, I don't think so. Because <laughs> no, that's kind of anti cinema too. Because Deacon said, but that's what he, I'm saying. I don't think he's not anti cinema at all. Oh, I, I don't like see him as anti cinema. Checking no. off all of the block, and that's well, no, what I'm saying. He does I, okay, this what I mean is anti expectations. Like he, he, I'm not saying he isn't making something that you could call a movie. He's making something that is, like, I mean, Deacon's framed a lot of his movies off of Solaris including yeah. most notably Deke, uh the knobs so i'm just kind of just like he's doing well, so movie. i think but i think the thing about tarkovsky is he is tarkovsky is one of these like intentionally challenging filmmakers right he's daring yes. you to experience film in a different way and take take have an experience that is not traditionally experienced by an audience right um so again you know <laughs> yeah 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 but but Solaris is never going to be an audience pleaser. It's just not like no. there, it's, there's no chance. Like modern, it's not made for even, that. even then, modern audiences, you know. So, and this is what I'm talking about before, where it's like, I, I'm, not, I, I'll, I'll even, I'll even grant you. I think that he may even want to do films. Like he may even want to be Tarkovsky, but he understands that this is also a business and if he i understand continually politics. held yeah. helm 180 million dollar projects i'm going to have to meet the studio halfway i'm going mm-hmm. to have to deliver them a profit i'm going to have to be someone who is pleasant to work with who doesn't you know make the studio look bad and i and and i'm convinced there's no way that you know we don't really have a lot of this the exposure but i'm really convinced that there's a lot of people that succeed in the industry not strictly because of creative or artistic merit. They may have good enough chops, but there's a lot to be said about being agreeable to work with, you know, meeting oh, yeah. people halfway, coming in your on or under budget. Without taking None of these time. things have to yeah. do with understanding mise-en-scene and three-act structure or anything. You're just yeah. a good employee. And again, Denis, for as much as we act like he's the boss and he maybe is creatively, the fact of the matter is that Denis can get fired by somebody who has the power to do so. So it's not like exactly. he's just the 100% shot caller. He's got to make his audience happy. 
He's got to make his studio execs happy and he's got to make himself happy. And that's a difficult balance, but I feel like somehow he figured out the correct stew and he's pulling it off. More props to him. Like mm-hmm. honestly, is the most impressive thing about him. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like I so mean, many people, it's... like, like, I'm sorry, just so many people, you you don't get a second chance to make another Blade Runner. You don't bomb a $180 million no. film and turn around and get $200 million. <laughs> it just yeah. doesn't happen, right? No, it doesn't. Um, I mean, so there's there's directors that have bombed uh, far worse than that, but he's agreeable, and that helps. And he is, to your point, like, there are those directors and creators out there that are, they're, they're, they're company men for lack of a better term or studio guys, you know, they're, they're the ones that are going to be, they're going to work well with uh, within the system and they're going to put out a, a decent product. They're not going to blow anybody's minds with their direction, but what they're making is competent and yeah. they get work. Right. And he's, for better or he's, worse. <laughs> he's like that, but an evolved version of it in a lot of ways because he knows how to balance all those different things while still making the art that he wants to make because his movies aren't, I wouldn't call them accessible, but they're much more accessible than, than some other directors can be mainstream incomprehensible, I guess, (laughs) but you can comprehend them. But like you say, they are that, that, you do have to make time for them. You do have to sit down. And like you say, he's been able to somehow get enough people's attention to where all the idiots who wouldn't otherwise bother might have themselves challenged and be like, whoa, that's awesome. And then others who were already preparing for a very heavy subject matter still get surprised, you know? So yeah, it's, he's a crowd pleaser. And yet he's also, yes, he's a businessman and he's, uh, a compromiser he's able to make what he wants which is something very grim and yet uh just a, mo- a giant novel visual novel yeah the man of many hats yeah dennis visual is what we should call him. not dennis but not just visual <laughs> <laughs> he visualized and man does he get per- good performances out of people too oh my god i yes. mean he gets look these are quality actors obviously if you're working oh with, yeah Oscar Isaac and Stellan Skarsgård and yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal and all these Amy people. Amy Adams. Like Amy Adams. These are quality. Jeremy actors. Renner, Forrest Whitaker. And but he is getting just amazing work out of all of them. And you can tell Even that they want to be. He's got freaking Christopher Walken as like one of the guys coming out in the yeah, I heard that. <laughs> Holly and, Technique. And usually we do all usual, hey, I'm Christopher Walken. And they're like, no, that makes sense. Because <laughs> a different ship that's selling here (laughs) he does like to work with david dasmalchian i've noticed yes which i appreciate because i love him i do too he's yeah when he was the kidnapper suspect and freaking uh prisoners i was just like but he's not even playing the you know the henchman in dark knight or you know (laughs) smart ass in ant-man he's playing a totally different type of creep here yeah yeah, it was pretty excited to see him pop up like, in Dune. Josh Brolin's and die of all people. Dune. Oh man, he. That was my only my only bummer about that was he just wasn't in it enough. Like, yeah, I wanted more of him. Yeah. I wanted more of Piter. I like that character anyway, and he yeah. just you know <laughs> it just didn't serve the story, which is fine. Um, but yeah, I mean that that cast of Dune is unreal. Staggering. Also, anyone he, else? He cast Rebecca Ferguson, and like, oh, yes. oh yeah, I was sold. They. they Put her in anything. I don't care. I'm watching it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Hell yes. yeah. 
we need more Rebecca Ferguson. But yeah, Emily Blunt, you know, I, oh, people yeah. can say, yeah, Edge of Tomorrow and all these other movies. I'm like, yeah, but she was a badass when you saw her in Sicario. It's like, that is so real. It's so vivid. <laughs> Jack, you were going to make a point about prisoners, I think. Uh, or was it Polytechnic? Poly, polytechnic. Um, well, even, those aren't name actors. Yeah, and... other than Viola Davis and Hugh Jackman. They're pretty much unknowns. I mean, even mm. Maria Bella barely gets any screen time. I'm referring but... to Polytechnic. Oh, Polytechnic. Oh, yeah. 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 Who, who is yeah, the star? And... The, I mean, yeah, there wasn't really like a, a specific protagonist, but each of the actors' performances were excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the shooter was uh, unnerving. Um, beyond what he was doing, just his performance was unnerving. And I think yeah. a lot of that comes down to like knowing all the different parts of a film. Mm-hmm. Like, there, filmmaking is such an art form of like different pieces that have to come together. You have to have your performances from your actors, your music your visuals, your visual effects, um, all of that has to come together to make something that works. And some directors are better at certain things than others, and he feels like somebody who can balance all of that. Yeah, um, you, you, can have, you can have an all-star cast. You can have one of the best composers. You can have one of the best cinematographers and still like not have it mesh and make an absolute pile of shit. Mm-hmm. But he he knows how to Coming make to these things work in concert. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and the other thing to remember too, as well, is it's really easy for us as you know film fans and people that want to dissect these things and look at theme and all of this stuff, to strictly look at the creative elements of filmmaking. But kind of going back to what I was talking before about you know working well with people, one of the interesting things that a lot of people don't realize is they actually like took a survey and they found that most directors in in filmmaking uh, actually tend to be left brain dominant as opposed to right brain dominant Mm. and so we often think of directing strictly (laughs) being this creative exercise but we forget about directing is not pre-production directing is not post-production it it factors in the real Mm. directing is running a set yeah, it's the, it's the logistics right? and the it's practicality. The Saying that you have enough, asking second unit to get pickup shots, getting... All of these different things, yeah. right? And so, so much of a successful director and, and in turn a successful picture is a director who's very simply a good manager, a good manager yep. of personalities, a good manager of logistics, knows where to delegate, right? Hey, yeah. I'm really good at this, so I'm going to take on this. Roger's re- really good at cinematography with him do whatever he wants to do right yep. sally's really good at set design listen to her i'm not going to question her i trust her complicitly and i expect all the rest of you to so much just the same way of like running a successful business is a lot of delegation setting mm-hmm. up yeah. good people to succeed i would it's- very again i haven't really studied this aspect of him but i would have to imagine that he's very good at that aspect of it as well because again you just don't see this continued successful execution at this level if you don't know how to manage all of those aspects oh absolutely that's i mean it's collaborative art and so that's why you see directors that will work with you know the coen brothers work with roger deakins how many times and uh you know the directors that work with certain cinematographers or you know down to like set designers and people because they you can that helps in that delegation too right if you can trust that your your cinematographer is really good you don't have to worry about that you can spend the brain cycles on the other parts of it and keep all those plates spinning 
because right. it's common really language after a while and having uh -huh. the trust of all these different factors all these different people that that accounts for all of it. I, I have yet to hear anyone just come out and say "Ooh, not working with that man again you know <laughs> yeah and sometimes you know we we it's interesting because we always ascribe a certain level of affinity for like these obsessed one man running right? it all that are like no just obsessed with their creativity and have to make the movie that they want but we sometimes forget about what that actually looks like on set so for example when terry gilliam was making 12 monkeys there's this very infamous story about how he wanted an insert of like this shot right it's this machine and in this big machine that's you know pumping, doing whatever it does, and it's got a bunch of pulleys <laughs> and gears and smoke and all this sort of stuff, he, he had a little hamster wheel. And then and he had this little, as a little touch, he had a little hamster wheel with a hamster and he wanted the hamster to be moving the wheel kind of as a little inside joke for this big, like this big giant industrial machine. Much like very Gilliam. Too hamster, ambitious. Right? <laughs> it's, very, it's very in character. Yeah. Yeah, so. The thing about it, they go to get the insert. Hamster doesn't want to play ball. Hamster doesn't want to run a hamster wheel. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. want to move forward, right? So uh, they're like, well, hey, maybe, you know, Terry, maybe we could just get it without the hamster. No, we got to get the hamster. Eight hours. They spent eight hours <laughs> on a three-second establishing insert because Terry Gilliam had to have the hamster moving. Oh Can you imagine how quickly you would lose your entire crew <laughs> making them sit there for eight hours? It was a and different then, time. And then you have to go that night and say, sorry, producers, we're now a day behind. The hamster wouldn't run. What are you going to do? Move on? Of course not. And they're like, yes, that's I what you should have done. Story, Move the fuck that... on. That makes sense. Yep, that, uh, so, that sounds you know, very so on like, brand. I would imagine that, yep. yeah, so I would have to imagine <laughs> that, again, Denis, that's, Denis not playing that shit. Hamster's not moving? Eh, I guess the hamster's not moving. We'll get it on the next one. Get the insert. Yep. We gotta move He still move. has a soul without being, like you say, one of those is like, if this shot's not in here, I automatically disown this. Otherwise, good movie. Yeah, <laughs> so, and it's like, none of us were like, oh, that... 12 monkeys would have been brilliant, but did you notice the insert where the hamster wasn't running in the wheel? You know, the movie Fuck falls movie. apart out without ten. the hamster. <laughs> it doesn't we, work unless I got this hamster shot. Yeah. And so he that's why the documentary he doesn't get spoiled. the hamster effect, by the way. If he does get <laughs> spoiled, who would know? You know? Yeah, <laughs> Every exactly. other everyone else goes relies on a gimmick. He relies on his interests. <laughs> yeah. And he's just smart enough to know what you fight for and what you don't. Okay, this is important. We got to get this. You know what? This isn't. Let's move on. Knowing who and to pick your battles is a skill. Exactly. It's a very important skill. Oh, absolutely. And it's a very, very important skill in filmmaking or any yeah, kind of talking about diverse. Joe and Jack. Oliver Stone's not controversial. Spike Lee's not outspoken. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone know uh, Denny's? background i'd be interested to know where he's coming I from just can, can, french no, canadian i don't yeah. Oh, yeah, french, yeah i grew up in quebec yep i think he more meant like his educational right yeah he's 5 10 and he was born in quebec <laughs> he just has three very prestigious uh canadian awards of various kinds just being okay. honored for his contribution like with Kubrick, we know he's a photographer. With uh, yeah. Ridley Scott, we know he's he like set decorating. A juggler, if I'm not mistaken. A juggler that there makes that yeah. I can Let's... see that in his, in his film work. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're right. I mean, film, a... yeah, his film studies and like studied science at one point. Interesting. Okay. That, that's right. Yeah. No, I do remember reading that that he he was into uh, he was into biology, if I'm not mistaken, or 
biology makes sense. It's funny how you brought up Ridley Scott. I do recall pals who, when Blade Runner 2 was coming out, they were literally dissecting the shit out of the trailer and like, that's a really shot compromise. That's a Dennis V shot. They have like, how can you know? It's just a trailer. But I do kind of feel like that might have been even the deal too. Is like Ridley Scott's the king of calling everybody a fucking idiot if you don't get them. And I, Dennis V's just not that kind. And he's like, move on. Someone will get it. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of, if anything, I'd even call him a progressive filmmaker because he doesn't wait for rejection. And like you say, he doesn't fall into the commonly known mousetraps. But yeah, other than his background, he is kind of just one of those we've just slowly been just learning more and more about. And just, I still want to see his very first movie he did, which is apparently a dark comedy. I'm just like, oh, I don't know where to find it, but. The 32nd of August, that one? Yeah. Yeah. I will find I... you and I will watch <laughs> Yeah, I want to give that one a watch. It's. <laughs> It doesn't sound like a, a movie he would make. Uh, makes me want to watch it even more. Right? Yeah. He's. You well, don't know was what it, to was expect. It, were these were his first films? Were they for U.S. studios or were they for uh, like, ca- French uh, or Canadian studios? Matt Maelstrom was yeah one of Canada's biggest movies distributed by Alliance Atlantis. Gotcha. So I mean I, that if, that could explain it. You if know, you I mean, want, I can email you a copy like, of that. Yeah, I would love that. Yep. You know. Uh, but for example, I just know that like, you know, like French films, right, like are, can be a little more, you know, out there, whether you're talking about like, sure. you know, Delicatessen or you're talking about Holy Motors, right? French so like, Wave, if it was one of those guys, right, where they're, yeah, they're kind of getting a little yeah. silly and Why is there not Luc Besson like music playing? Yeah, exactly, you know, but, uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, but then I think that, uh, you know, pretty much once he got picked up by the U.S. studio system, you know, he got Americanized. Probably more traditional. <laughs> a little bit more, probably, yeah. The stupid Americans, I show you. Make the anti-American. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I just I just have enjoyed everything of his I've watched for different reasons, too. And exactly. I think it's not that's kind of a, a cool thing. You're not gonna let nostalgia play a part in it where yeah, you, you see it all the time when Scorsese and Spielberg loyalists will be like, oh, but I was going to love it. I'm like, I get that you were going to love it anyway, but you got to admit, this is weak sauce compared to there. Every time he puts out a new movie, I'm like, are you going to break that streak? How about now? <laughs> How about, no, still, still going, huh? All right. <laughs> By the way, uh, Jack, you actually said, if I recall, that you didn't like Sicario the first time you saw it. Was that correct? First time I was like, she, she's not a... She's just sitting by and letting shit happen to her the whole time, which is not a <laughs> not a protagonist I tend to like. Yeah, I've, well, no, I, I, I'm. The, so that's what I was going to ask because that to date, that's actually the one film of his that I would say that like is is fine. I don't, I didn't get what from Sicario what everyone else got from it, but <laughs> I did only watch it once. So I'm just curious, what about future viewings changed your opinion, or you know, was there something you picked up on that you missed earlier? What what accounts yeah. for the difference? So I think they just say it's actually good. <laughs> um, aside from you know it being technically a well-made film, uh, coming to the understanding that her being an ineffective protagonist is the whole point, um, yeah. kind of made me look at the film differently. I mean, that and there's like a 20-minute chunk of the movie where she, we just follow Benicio del Toro. Uh, yeah, now that's that's definitely the strongest, like for sure. Right, but that he was 
able to tell a story where we leave who we assume to be the protagonist for that duration of time is something I'm not used to seeing in a film. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I was kind of films, ready for it, especially with how randomly she's at a bar and she gets attacked by one of the violent patrons. Right. And shows that, how it's definitely she's not let her leg. guard down and it's, she can't even rely on her teammates to help her out. She's it. If anything, I'm getting an isolation factor in all of this, just like yeah. uh, all you of know, us protagonists tend to have an isolation. Yeah. Factor, yeah. Goslin mm-hmm. goes a while before he finds Deckard and uh, Hugh Jackman has to realize his neighbors are going to play by the rules and he wants to be a vigilante secretly at night and he's you know, not going to stand by. He's going to make that little shit serial killer pay. <laughs> I'm I'm curious, based upon his filmography, do you think that he leans more towards the pessimist or the optimist? As far Optimistically as towards... pessimist. You know what? It is interesting. I would, I would, I would say that I do, and and this is kind of maybe the more traditional character arc. I do think that, like, if you notice, all of his stories do have a happy ending ultimately at the end of the day, right? In Arrival, you know, everything is all part of the puzzle. They don't go to war. Yeah. There, and then maybe there's some ambiguity there. Maybe it's not like 100% wrapped up in a bow, right? But everything gets that resolution, um, and I think that it's like. I think that his characters, though, they do tend to be more on the like pessimistic side of things. Mm-hmm. I don't think they have positive worldviews, but I but think that's in- yeah, I think that's intentional. I think it's I think it's supposed to be about that, you know, sort of the traditional human struggle, right? And mm-hmm. how we're constantly and I think it, it probably informs his worldview. Like I would imagine he doesn't have the cheeriest view of the world, you know, at large. He sounds like the and kind of insomniac who just watches the clock and then realizes, oh fuck, it's 5 a.m. I gotta go well, to work. I, 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 think that, I think that he realizes that so much of life is it's like constant challenges. A and the challenges cycle. can be small <laughs> or they can be huge. They can be there's long-term challenges and short-term challenges. <laughs> but you always get the sense that like his protagonists are almost like carrying this burden of life and like they haven't bingo you know they they're they're not doing either they're not doing what they're supposed to do or they're disenfranchised with they have it all the world was or what they thought their world was you know um so it is kind of interesting to to he doesn't focus on the spoiled eider he basically focuses on i don't want to even say ones who can be exploited or used as victims so much as ones who can be taken advantage of and then when they're betrayed, he basically has his character stare them down because they, you know, they've been engaging in the same information that they've obtained, like the audience. And he's like, "Okay, I need an honest reaction, you know, before they die, before they, you know, get conquered, before they get arrested or sent away." He and like you guys have, again, once again, been hitting on. Hard to define a genre. Hard to define all this stuff. And, I mean. To even get the scoop from any of his movies, like if you were to again not care for any of them, you still want to rewatch them again and just get a different tone, get a different vibe. Understand a lot the man. to chew on. His movies are good for a second watch just because there's so much to chew on. Mm-hmm. So much, absolutely. It's it, it could be like eating a protein bar, and you know you're not supposed to have more than one of those. You're like, no, I can handle this extra protein. I'm ready. It's I'm ready. ready. This is a whole mess. It's <laughs> so dense, but I can take more. To quote, to quote a wise man once known as Leroy Jenkins, "Let's do this." <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to light it. 
<laughs> he has plenty of Leroy Jenkins in his movies, and he doesn't insult us with, you know, he doesn't focus on their stupidity. He's like, we already know they're like scum of the earth or corrupted or what have you. It's like, we just need to give them their moment in the sun and hint at what they're going to do for their inevitable destruction that they're going to cause. And so many other filmmakers just seem to linger on that. They love their actors too much to let them ham it up. And like, you're taking me out of the movie here, Smalls. And he knows how to just kind of linger on it enough and not, like you say, be excessive. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> he, so he's optimistically... Pessimistic or... Yeah. yeah. Sure. So welcome. <laughs> but, but again, you know, by doing that, it's like, you know, it gives them some place to go, you know, right? To like, go. They, they, yeah. You know, he doesn't do too little and he doesn't do too much. It's just right. Yeah. And I think, I think again, it's probably his worldview that like life just constantly throws shit at us and we can either succumb to it or we can just keep plugging away. And, and, you know, the optimism is that, hey, you know, a lot of shit's going to come at you. But if you hang in there and you just stick with <laughs> you it, just by make the it time the we get the to the end, it's actually going to work out for you. <laughs> He's the guy... have some scars and have been fucked up along the way. But like, you'll get there, you know, you'll, you'll find the kid, you'll become the king, you'll, you know, Sometimes save the world. Sometimes your wife's a giant spider, whatever. but it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seems I, that one was the most relatable. Just <laughs> <because>. <laughs> you work in a coal mine, but your boss dies first because you toughed fuck it out. <laughs> Just fuck that guy. <laughs> fuck that guy making life hell for you, giving you barely any lunchtime. Yeah. He's the who's the canary now? <laughs> who's the, yeah, who's the pawn? Yeah. He's that guy. He, he toughs it out. Uh, I see He's so many married. people who were using the same sta staffing agency I was using, and they were quitting, not realizing how good they had it. I pretty much wait for waited for the staffing guys to refuse to take my side and fire me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think this is it. A lot of people don't like to tough it out. They want instant results. So, yes, as we've been saying, anyone who wants instant just reflection is like, you to think you got it all like i i knew going into his movies no i don't have it all i have a lot I, he has organized chaotic thoughts but they're even not chaotic technically it's just it's a lot that he crammed into us it's a good steroid without <laughs> without any repercussions or other awful effects that <laughs> would harm us uh we feel harmed because they're just so real and vibrant and he is real and like you say jason has been hitting on he is the definition of life in cinema because he has reflected on life uh, i would love to see more sit downs with him i haven't been able to find as much stuff uh i have fuck i have both sicarios on blu-rays of course i have blue blade the blade runners but i should sit down and actually listen to the commentary tracks of those movies i bet those like, would be interesting how yeah. did you oh, yeah. decide and get engulfed the audience in hell and not the war kind <laughs> more like just all kinds dread <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dude, it's, it's, it's so hit and miss, man, because it's like, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to listen to a Chris Nolan commentary, but it's it's fucking death, dude. It's yeah. so boring. <laughs> it's pretty dry. Yeah, just, like, the man loves the sound of his own voice. Right? And so my, uh, or even like a, even like a like, or like, you know, going back to like Tim Burton, dude, they'll just be like, it's like, you haven't said oh. anything in seven minutes. You know this, right? You're supposed right. to be talking about the movie. Yeah. You need made. to talk. talk. <laughs> so my, my expectations of... My expectations of DVD commentary have been completely destroyed because the ones that I've listened to the most are the ones on the Venture Brothers DVDs. Uh, and <laughs> listening listening to those guys just talk about random bullshit that's not at all what's happening on the oh, screen yeah. or even <laughs> relevant to what's happening on the screen is like, is that, are they all like this? 
Yeah, <laughs> not all, but some of them are. I mean, the South Park Perfect. ones are funny because at oh, the God. time yeah. they're just talking Those about how it's even conceived, and then you're like, oh yeah, we got to be talking about Cartman on screen. Uh, the 24 <laughs> ones are hysterical because it, you just want to see who's just going to be a potty mouth and just start saying, "Oh yes, I'm Mr. Bad Boy here." Oh, <laughs> oh sure. I mean, for every Fight Club commentary track that's David Fincher and Brad Pitt just taking the piss out of each other, you right? And commentary track <laughs> Not even in the with same John room McTiernan. Like, yeah. How can oh, how can John McTiernan be one of the best action film directors and visually arresting directors, and he is just dull as toast to listen yeah. to talk? And then he starts talking about nine eleven. I don't like, get what it. What the hell is going on here, dude? Yeah. I mean, that's why it's a visual medium. You know, that's probably why yeah. he was attracted to it. He's like, I have a lot to say, but I suck with words. But I'm uh, good so with. So now pictures. I gotta ask so, you. Hey, here yeah. we go. Has yeah. any of you ever listened to a Jim Wynorski commentary? No. I'll go you one further. I don't even know who that is. Okay, so Chopping Mall, there's Roger Corman, Return oh, of Swamp Thing. Oh, did he do Chopping Mall? Dude, I have Bunch to admit, of... that was on Shudder. I watched that for the first time a few days ago, and like, that is that is not the business. I did not, I did not enjoy that. <laughs> it's all good. It's all here's good. A, it was a movie. Here's, here's the thing about trash cinema, right? There's two different times of, of trash <laughs> cinema where a bunch of crazy shit happens, just the most ridiculous off the wall. That's what I'm here for. But there's a lot of films where nothing happens. And they come yep. up with some crazy idea, but they're like, we had Dick 50 to make it with. So like, there's two <laughs> cool scenes and 70 minutes of filler. And it's like, dude, I'm sorry. Like, I it's can't because it was that. produced by Roger Corman, who's allergic to spending money. <laughs> Correct. Uh, yeah. And this is what so... Wynorski does. He he and Fred Olin Ray will do everything. They'll do <laughs> yeah. action movies for, <laughs> right. <laughs> action movies for HBO that will have stock I'm footage from that. clearly bigger yeah. budget oh, movies. Yeah. Then they'll do Roger Corman shit. <laughs> then they do Skinwax yeah. shit. Then they do other bullshit where you're, they disown it even. And you're like, yeah, well, you made it, motherfucker. You don't get to walk off that easy. But <laughs> We've yeah. made so films for uh, his commentaries are amazing. <laughs> they are absolutely amazing because half the time he's Literally doing have. his own mystery science theater. Like, oh, fuck, I framed it out of focus, didn't I? And then there's other ones where he's like, yeah, so here's how I came up with a stupid pun. I, I, I rewrote this into the script and all the stock footage I watched just to make sure I could make a movie with all the stock footage. I'm like, this is yeah. amazing. <laughs> One Man. of the greatest commentary tracks, by the way, if you can watch it is vampires kiss really? because it's the director and it's Nick cage. There oh are clips God. of it. I found on YouTube. <laughs> There's a moment in that movie and I'm listening to the commentary track and Nicholas cage is like, so in this scene, I was, Actually, you know what? I don't know what I was doing here. Like, I'm not sure what exactly was. It just seemed like the thing I should do. Oh, so See, it's like the just... Schwarzenegger tracks where he's basically stating the obvious on screen. No, it's, it's like Cage being like, I, I, I'm not sure what, like, why, why he's I, even here in the and, studio and he goes, recording. He goes on and on about, like, the accent that he was using and where that came from. And, like, just also, it's amazing. It's phenomenal. Like, seek it out, find it. Vampire's <laughs> Kiss, it's worth This is it. one more reason that I'm sad that Superman Lives didn't actually happen. <sighs> imagine know, right? the commentary track that would have come out of that. So they told me, I'm a god, but I thought he was an alien. So I argued, I, I compromised. I said, it's an alien god. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, if you guys uh, uh surprisingly super interesting and really, really fun commentary track is Milos Foreman and I forget the screenwriter's name, but for Amadeus, the, the track oh, I, bet oh, I, I, bet. Amadeus. I bet he Dude. reflects deep on life. 
Oh, I've got to You know check what it is? Out. It's one it's one of these things where you you don't realize because it's just for whatever reason never, you know, got popularized or wasn't notorious, but like so many interesting aspects of that shoot happen <laughs> because like just for example, just real quick, like they while they were filming that in Prague, I believe it was Czech Republic, like they were actually yeah. like in the middle of a war, right? And oh, so shit. And so, and they had a, they had this sort of communist dictator that was in place. And so like all throughout the film, he would discover that the government was having secret police show up to any scene (laughs) that had a bunch of extras. So like when you see like Mozart in the theater and he's like coming and he's composing and there's all those people in the back, like probably like. 5% 5% of those people ended up being secret police. What the <laughs> and he, fuck? Yeah. And dude, he's now got I this story. He talks about since high school. Great he, movie. He found out this was the case because uh, this is the last story. I swear I won't hijack this. We'll go out. Um, so it's all right. We already have. It's fine. He's filming one <laughs> of these it. big scenes, right? It's 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 got a hundred extras and it's the 4th of July. Okay. <laughs> so the Prague government is very much like wants to like, do a solid for the American filmmakers, a little sign of respect. You're spending money here and everything. So at, so they're show. filming this big scene, it ends. And all of a sudden out of nowhere with nobody, but the Prague uh, government understanding this American flag starts dropping from the background. Okay. And all of the people, all of the people, the, the Prague nationals start singing the American, they stand up. And start singing what? the American so... national anthem. <laughs> now there are two things that are freaking out Milos about this right now. The first, he's in a communist government, so he has no what idea right now? the response that they're going to have to their national singing the American national anthem on Independence Day in their country. So he's worried about that. On top of that, he's like, dude, there are seventeen people that are seated. And they look very panicked. Who are these people? And they were supposed to be Those are the the secret police. The secret police police were not in on this. They have no idea what's going on right now. And they're very panicked by all of their countrymen singing the American national anthem on the 4th of July. Holy shit. That's just one story of dozens you just do broke yourself Jack. a favor and listen to that commentary track. So like the movie, movie's fine the is remake amadeus in the czech republic and i just want to buy the same kind of reaction that yeah yeah and, i just and it's the it's the director's cut too that the, he does the commentary. Okay. first of all you can't find the theatrical cut which is arguably superior but either way director's cut just the, 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 the commentary track so makes it i, I love it okay. <laughs> we'll this out Ooh. oh don't be Milos Foreman. Yeah. As amazing <laughs> as he is. Because so that, that is, is a, a dicey, good contrast. Because there's a man who made so many crowd placers. Producers loved working with him, even though they didn't get their money back. Filmmaker uh, audiences loved it. And you know, the author of Cuckoo's Nest found himself enjoying it until he realized, oh, that's the adaptation I've disowned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it it is interesting just seeing all these beloved filmmakers finally getting the due that they deserve and those who are still continuing to work wonderfully without having to suck you know suck up <laughs> absolutely yeah but that is amazing yeah so screw you gestapo we're playing the music <laughs> <laughs> playing this blasting this bitch with this boom box on independence day in the check. amazing 
oh well now's the time where we pick each other's brains and we allow you to do your elevator pitch of your shows so esoterica cinema where can we find that jason absolutely so our show is esoterica cinema we tend to look at films that are a little bit off the beaten path maybe not as Many. deep as some of like the the like you know super grindhousey films that we've been talking about here <laughs> um but you know like a like a like an early villeneuve film right like an ensemble or something where it's like you know not a lot of people have seen it but it was still it still had a little bit of a budget pretty good um, so yeah esoterica cinema uh we you can find us literally anywhere you know website esotericacinema.com Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, all the rest, we're everywhere. And the other thing that we uh, do on our shows, even though it really doesn't belong there at all, is uh, we actually do a unique comedy sketch that is inspired by the film that we mm -hmm. are reviewing that week. Yeah, I was so, getting uh, MST3K uh, vibes where you were kind of yeah, just so. doing a satirical interaction. <laughs> it's like, here's this person I've been bitching about for an hour. <laughs> I'm going to now break the fourth wall and interact with them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I we do, uh, we, we, we do a couple <laughs> little selfish improv, a little selfish two or three minute improv at the top of the show. And then we get a little comedy sketch in there just because me and my co-host Ryan Siebold, who's an awesome dude, roll, man. we both love comedy, but we also love movies. And it's like, well, hey, uh, nobody's paying us. No, nobody's probably going to listen anyways. Like, let's just do whatever the hell we want. And then actually some people started listening. So go figure. But yeah, you can find us stuff, again, man. Yeah. Esoterica Cinema. Uh, you can find us anywhere if you're looking for reviews on uh, some of the lesser examined films throughout cinematic history that still, uh, you know, offer a lot of merit. We do a lot of Criterion movies. Let's put it that way. Yeah, baby. Uh, <laughs> criterion just uh, the opposite of our show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All good. It's called balance. It's balancing. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You guys exist. I exist. Cars. Now everybody's oh, yeah. taken care of out there, right? Oh, flush mm -hmm. it all out. <laughs> we actually cry at the beginning of each of our episodes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys. Love y'all. Okay, so Travis. Yeah, so I do a show called Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's just movie discussion. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I put I put punctuation in the title. It's it terrible SEO. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's just movie discussion. But I bring on new guests every week, and it's always somebody's first time seeing a movie. There's no restriction on uh, era or genre or anything. But it usually what I tell people when I'm having them on is, what's a movie on your list of shame? What's something that you've wanted to see or you've been told that you should see and you haven't seen it you're also uh, so a like, dungeons and dragons and detroit tigers fan yes yes um so like <laughs> that out there That's like awesome. i've seen stuff like again uh sunset boulevard was one that i'd never seen um uh what was the other um my 100th episode i did the shawshank redemption i had gone 20 years plus without seeing the Shawshank Redemption and I saw it wow. and it was better than everyone told me it was. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's just, it's just fun to talk. I've got somebody coming up in a couple of weeks who is a movie person, movie buff, loves movies, has never seen the original Halloween. I'm like, Oh no, we're fixing oh, that. Wow. We're fixing that like tomorrow. So, so that's <laughs> nice. coming up soon. So I have a lot of fun with that. Uh, you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. Wait, you haven't seen with a question mark, or just go to tvstravis.com and there's uh, links there to, to get it. On they all probably the were too busy watching Resurrection with Buster Rhymes. And if you uh, go back to August, you'll get to hear both of us. Yeah, yep. Jason was on the show uh, a few months ago. Yeah, uh, that's actually why we, we, we popped up and I was like, hey, I was wondering you. why hey, you. you guys felt so nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just did an episode like, a couple of months ago. Yep. 
So what movie did you guys talk about on that episode? We talked about oh man, Moonstruck, Cage Palooza. That's what it was. Oh, the first every August. We're in the Cage Palooza tweets. <laughs> yep. Every every August I do all Nick Cage movies for the month. That's beautiful. That's yeah. a because, absolutely beautiful thing. Because Nicholas Cage is a national treasure. Yes. Yeah, not just for 100%. national treasure. Thank you. <laughs> he was in National Treasure. He is one, and I just like to celebrate him because I mean that shit, but in the best possible way. <laughs> yes. One hundred percent. Yeah, I was actually really already done that we Deadpool? did would do Vampire's Kiss, but you'd already done Vampire's Kiss, so we ended up. Yeah, <laughs> no, I I did that one year a couple years ago. My first year of Cage, that was actually the first Nicolas Cage Cage of Palooza movie was Vampire's Kiss. Oh, okay, nice. But, but, but when are we getting Deadpool? Uh well, that, yeah, that'll <laughs> come up at it. some point. Okay. I mean, look, it's eventually I'm gonna run out of Nick Cage movies. Jack it's gonna take a while. <laughs> Have you, guys heard the, the shit uh, out have you guys heard the how did this get made on deadfall that was a fun one. Oh, they i'm sure did. i have that was yeah. actually a live episode that they did out here in los angeles that we went and saw like that's oh, why sweet. i oh, saw wow. that movie oh, wow. get to hear them it's, feedback and 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 I, I was really hoping that i would get to say this it's totally one of those like random like fun factoids that you hopefully one of you gets it you might not but funny thing is so i'm watching deadfall and like Nick Cage is delivering his dialogue. And I'm like, what the? Why do I know this? I've never seen this movie, but the words <laughs> that he's saying, I have heard these words before. And they're bizarre words like, who sent you? Sam fucking Peckinpah. That's not a phrase you'll just hear anyway. Yeah. Right? So yeah, when that's that, something that like that comes up, you're like, no, I heard that phrase. It has to be something. It turned out, I don't know if you guys liked metal back in the day. But there was a band oh, that yeah. came out in the late 90s, and they were called Snot, okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've heard of Snot. They I'm only had one album, and unfortunately, the lead singer died in a car crash, and uh, the, the band dissolved. So, But there is a song on there, life. much to my surprise, did not realize this was the inspiration. It's called <laughs> Deadfall, and the entire song is them <laughs> is, is basically them singing the story of deadfall outstanding while working in some of the more insane dialogue those are the like kinds the of movies they go verse. for they get all so these cool if movies anybody sample. <laughs> has either seen the movie deadfall but is not familiar with this band snot or as was the case with me knows the band snot but does not know that there's a movie that exists called <laughs> deadfall that is the inspiration for one of their songs on that album you're welcome beautiful nice. it Downfall makes so much more sense <laughs> and it was kind of the room of its day it's just it kind of just played at like one theater and went straight to video and the other rest of the state so it is kind of yeah. funny how half these movies are being rediscovered just because people have just stared it down at the video store all before saying pass you know and then <laughs> now everything's on streaming so good luck avoiding it you're gonna find right. it one way or the other now it'll get out there it's not just I flipped to the wrong channel and saw the last 30 minutes and said, I want my time back now. It's, oh, and I think our culture has just changed so much, you know, is like we're encountering all kinds of movies that we otherwise would never see. But now we're at a different time in our lives. And it's like now our expectations are different. Now our idea of entertainment is different. Such as the bad movies Jack and Joe discuss on Razzle. 
What are we? What are we calling? Tell, 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 tell them what our show. Tell them what our show does. Oh, I figured viewers don't want to hear us at the two-hour mark now. And me. Uh, so we're called Drazzled, and we take award-winning horse films and fix them. Kind of, sort of. Usually, sometimes. <laughs> you did a good job. Uh, you did you. a good job. Uh, we kind of split our Just episodes between... Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm giving you encouragement. Uh, it's not an encouragement. Sorry. We we pick uh, movies that have won a Razzie or were nominated for Razzie. We figure out, like, what, what happened? Like, and then what determine wrong. why it's bullshit. Uh, and then we try to rewrite it. Uh, but we also sometimes check out movies that were stuck in development hell. That's something we've started doing this season. Yes, uh, digging yes. into development hell and trying to figure out, uh, trying to figure out like, like where where a production really went wrong or uh, why it got stuck in stuck in that place for so long. Uh, we <laughs> the recently did a two. <laughs> we just did a two parter on Superman Lives oh, that God. was quite fun. <laughs> uh, and uh, we also before that did the Six Million Dollar Man, uh, which was uh, which was. I learned so much from that. Into. I had no idea that the Stephen D'Souza, the writer of Die Hard, who had worked on yeah. the show, came over like the best script, and still it wasn't enough. You're like. Fuck me, man! It's wild. The number of people that were that were uh, involved in that, and were specifically had ties to the original show that were involved in various stages of that. And then, and like still the best writers come together, dying, and then you're just like, Shit, this movie's not going to be made. And then Marky Mark wants to do it, and then he passes it's on. Fucking Mark Wahlberg! The fact that we were two episodes into the <laughs> development, you talk about Mark Wahlberg so come up twice. <laughs> it's not something I ever wanted to happen, but. <laughs> i always love it you guys threw it at you of the new world pictures podcast where half the time you'll kind of try to convince each other then you'll just kind of uh dryly reply no <laughs> <laughs> buzz off i'm your co-host i'm suffering with you don't encourage more suffering <laughs> you can also find us everywhere yeah everywhere you listen places. to podcasts uh You're also everywhere. at also at derazzled.com uh, where you can find a bunch of our episodes, a bunch of uh, pictures of our cats. Uh, and uh, yes. and we also have merch on uh, Redbubble at derazzled merch. Mm-hmm. And for the most curtain. important question, what are the cats' names? We all want to know. Ooh, ooh. Uh, there's there, there's, uh, five, total, right? there's five, five total. Yeah, so Jack has two, which are... Uh, Bushy, which is short for Bushyasta, which is the mm-hmm. Zoroastrian demon of lethargy. Uh, and Hazel, because it. it's a cute name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's usually then, how it goes. Let's yeah, just go right. back to the first part. That's and, then, <laughs> and, Joe, and Joe, do you have pretentious names or normal names? Uh, my, mine, have, mine have somewhat normal names. Uh, so we have three cats uh, at my house. There's uh, Lucretia. <laughs> uh, you got to say this. And I lived Lucretia? together for a little while and knows he, he met Lucretia firsthand. It's, it's still healing. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, Lucretia. <laughs> Uh, and then we also have our two uh, uh, idiot orange boys, uh, Ben and Samson. Nice. Samson the vampire? Nice. Um, Samson and Goliath? Well, I mean, he did bite the hell out of me very early on All in right, our so relationship. So uh, maybe. <laughs> but now he's my best friend, and he has, no, he has never had a thought cross through his tiny pea brain. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's our next podcast is where we all just bring our cats on and yeah. <laughs> hosted by our cats in space in the hood oh no gotcha. <laughs> i'm killing you all thank you all this was dynamite
No, it's a lot of fun. Boom, boom. Definitely. Follow us on the web on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The podcast is available on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Anchor, Apple, and anywhere else podcasts are available. Feel free to review our show and leave comments on any of those sites. Thanks a million for listening. It's a jacked up.